Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. This week we are talking about Dear John, the 80s sitcom written by John Sullivan, more famous for Only Fools and Horses. Uh, my name is Alan. I am here with my good colleague Gareth. Hello. Hello. So, Gareth, we're back. Dear John this time. Uh, this is p- probably the least well-known or well-remembered of the shows we've done so far. Well, yeah, I, I picked this one. Um, so for listeners' benefit, I'm uh, what, nine years older than you. So I remember Dear John. I was born in 1975, so I was sort of 11, 12 when this was on. And I, I remember it. I remember it being quite funny, but a little bit unusual and a little bit alien to me. And I didn't really understand the world of divorcees. <laughs> but I remember the... Do you feel like this is an accurate portrayal of the world of divorcees? Well, I don't know. I've never experienced that. But... Like the, we're going to talk about the characters in a minute, but obviously the the most eye catching character is Kirk Saint Moritz, yeah. and I do remember him very clearly as this sort of ridiculous cartoonish character. But it was interesting watching it again that to some extent it felt like all the characters were very cartoonish, um, which <laughs> yeah. perhaps we'll go on to speak about. <laughs> uh, but it it was I mean you can perhaps tell me more about where it sat when it came out, but. For my memory, it was a you know it was a peak time, prime time uh, BBC sitcom, and you know lots of people watched it. Obviously, I consider myself something of a sitcom aficionado. That's why I do the show. But this is uh, the first thing we've done, which I have not only not seen prior to us deciding to do it. I didn't really know anything about it either. The one thing I knew was that it was John Sullivan, obviously hot mm-hmm. off the back of Only Fools and Horses. Well, hang on. When you say off the back of, Only Fools and Horses must have been going for quite a while by then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it had been going on for five years at that point. Because uh, I'm quite point interested of... to know why... What, did he take a holiday from Only Fools and Horses? You know, when we talked about other writers, for example, Carla Lane, you know, she did Butterflies and then she stopped doing that and then she did Bread. Was this in a gap between Only Fools and Horses? Was it at the same time? How did it work? No, it was all really at the same time. I mean, he'd also done Just Good Friends. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know. I remember earlier. that. I don't know he'd written that too. Yeah, which was concurrent with Only Fools and Horses. He was just writing two things at once, basically. And, you know, these things are generally six episodes a year. So to do 12 episodes a year is not unrealistic, really. I mean, if you're just one guy churning stuff out, that's probably as good as it gets. But certainly we we could argue, as we'll be getting onto this later, that perhaps the second series of Dear John didn't get 100% attention. <laughs> but... Well, yeah, so that's interesting you should say that. So just for the benefit of the listeners, we are the episode we're going to focus on today is from season one. It's episode five called Toby. Mm-hmm. But yes, in, in terms of researching, uh, we watched, and I think you probably watched them all. I watched four episodes from series one and a couple from series two. And it was interesting to note the difference in uh, quality. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair word. <laughs> it just it just seemed to have, everyone seemed to be taking it a little bit more easy. Yeah, I mean, is this a, a good point to get into a bit of John Sullivan history? That might be the best way yeah, to Yeah, let's start. do that. I, I guess at some point we'll cover Only Fools and Horses uh, yeah. and there'll be a lot to say. So maybe we, we get John Sullivan done now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I, I think that the great thing about John Sullivan is when you look into his past, it is kind of what you want it to be. Like, he's just a bit of a cheekney cockney barra boy who is, uh, like, left school at 15 with no real serious education, but really liked stories and telling stories and reading stories, mm-hmm. big fan of Charles Dickens and all this sort of thing. So he obviously had some kind of inspiration. 
you know, did a whole range of working class jobs, worked in the markets and all this sort of stuff, you know, all this stuff that you you, you can tell informs uh, Only Fools and Horses, certainly. Uh, uh, he wanted to write, he, he wrote things and, and was trying to get them made, the BBC weren't paying any attention, so he thought, well, best thing to do, get a job at the BBC, and then I'm like, I'm there, I'm in the nerve centre, what else can, what else, you know, yeah. I can do anything. So he gets a job, the only job he can get, which is working in the props department, just shifting stuff around. And, I mean, this, the story goes, I mean, I, and I've heard this sort of from the horse's mouth, so to speak, in interviews, but it seems hard to believe that basically he was working on the props thing, he's working on porridge, and he sort of just slips a script to Ronnie Barker with some of his sketches and goes, I'll oh, check these out, mate. <laughs> and, it right. is, and it, like I say, it really suits kind of an idea of John Sullivan as a sort of, you know, like a sort of cheeky, cheeky chappy, like a Del Boy kind of <laughs> trying to do a dodgy deal. Yeah. But, you know, um, Ronnie Barker liked them and, and he got some sketches on uh, on the two Ronnies. But there wasn't that, weren't they very um, kind of very solicitous with scripts for the two Ronnies? They would, it was basically open, anyone could send in scripts, and if they were good enough, they would get made. I guess so, yeah. I mean, that seems like a very open, <laughs> like, just somebody. I mean, that might be a slight exaggeration, but but I have I have heard that before, that a lot of people, you know, their first TV work was, oh, yeah, I sent a script into the two well, Ronnies. Well, as we've seen before on this very uh, podcast and people we've looked at before, so many people start out just writing sketches and that's how you mm. get your foot in the door at the BBC, basically. But I guess I guess the difference is that Sullivan already had his, his feet in the door by yeah. he was doing doing the prop work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, and then at, so at some point he he managed to get to Dennis Main Wilson, who was one of the producer at the BBC, mm-hmm. and gave him uh, a script, which was the pilot for what became Citizen Smith. Oh, okay. And from what I've heard, again, in interviews and stuff, they, they were just like, yeah, this is great writing. It's perfect. We don't even mess with it. Let's just make it. Uh, it, it kind of sounds a bit too good to be true, but it just seems like John Sullivan's such a good writer <laughs> and, yeah. and, and could write. But I, I was thinking about this, you know, in terms of how often we'll see, certainly in these earlier sitcoms, you know, our writers being people who were not necessarily like really educated in literature or writing, you know, like, so when we mm. did Rising Damp, Eric Chappell was working, you know, for the gas board or, or whatever it was. Yeah. And just wrote plays and stuff in his spare time. Yeah. And I think particularly with sitcom, because it's so dialogue heavy, that comes much more naturally than, say, if you're trying to write a novel. It's easier to write. It's just dialogue. I was going to say anyone can write dialogue. Of course, not anyone can write dialogue. But you don't necessarily need any technical expertise. That, that's to be it, able isn't to it? It's dialogue. not necessarily easier. It's mm. just perhaps comes more naturally if you just go around talking and speaking to people. You get you learn it all just in the mm. sort of in the school of hard knocks, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Uh, rather than um, Oxbridge, so <laughs> yes. uh, it, it favors that somewhat. Well, there's an interesting path then for John Sullivan to go from you know working class hero Citizen Smith to you know Barra Boys Del Boy and Rodney yeah. through to a middle class divorcee teacher yeah could, John. yeah exactly and another thing I've really heard about John Sullivan or that I've heard him say is that he you know oh I write what I know you know like so that's makes sense you know when he wrote Citizen Smith I mean he was in his sort of late 20s by that point but you know it was about him being a kind of idealistic youth yeah yeah so only fools and horses it's uh, about the sort of people he met in his day-to-day life when he was working these kind of more uh, working class jobs and working on the market stalls and stuff. Fun characters that you mm-hmm. f- meet down the nag's head, you know? So you're telling me his wife had left him? 
Well, no, I'm telling you that his wife hasn't left him and they were married for 37 years until he died. So perhaps that could tell us something about dear John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, about his lack of um, familiarity with the material. Well, that was what really struck me because even just good friends, you know, it's about a couple getting together and the problems with that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all been through that. You know, the guy was married. Yeah. You know, he'd been through that. And the things we see in Dear John, like obviously he's going through a divorce and, you know, I can't speak for John Sullivan. I know that he was married until he died uh, and there's no information to suggest they split up and just never divorced or anything like that. So has he been through that process of separation, of not being able to see your kid until like Sunday, every Sunday? I don't know. Uh... But what interests me, Alan, is that I think the situation in this sitcom is is not really anything to do with the separation. The episode that we're going to talk about, you know, you see his ex-wife and his son. Mm-hmm. But really most of the main situation is the one-to-one club. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it's the this group for divorcees and they are our main characters. So it's not really about divorce. It's about connecting with other people and that kind of middle-aged awkwardness yeah. and just trying to refind your position in life. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of my main complaints with this episode is that this this is episode five and it's the first time we see the wife. It's the first time mm-hmm. we see the child. And we don't they don't become regulars. We see them a couple more times in series two. Yeah. But I really feel like, oh, this is a great material. Like the wife, there's the the other man as well that used to be his friend. And like there's so much there if you actually build these characters up and, and, and write them well. It feels like that's really good fodder for a situation. That's a different one, though, isn't it? It's a different well, you're situation. Right. It's not the situation we actually get here. Yeah. So in in the very first episode, he's going to find this one-to-one club. It's, it's in a community centre, and he's trying to find a, a bunch of people who look kind of lonely and lost. <laughs> and he accidentally goes into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Nice little gag with all that. It's <sighs> a gag that you see coming a mile away, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it worked very nicely. I, I was all right with that. But you're right. This could just as easily be... Dear John, he's an alcoholic and he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And like yeah. that's yeah. the kind of the bunch of misfits are just, that's what they have in common. Yeah, well, the joke, the, the, the premise of that joke is he looked into the room and it looked like a group of divorcees and it yeah. was a group of alcoholics. And what's the difference? And that, you know, that's, that's the premise of the, the mix up. But yes, you're right. It wouldn't be a different situation, would it? <laughs> yeah. And also to note of our main characters, one of them is just a liar who's never been married at all. One of them was in an arranged sort of marriage of convenience for three hours. Like, they're not divorcees as in, oh, no. we were together 10 years, my whole life was falling apart. No, they're not relating to each other on that level. Exactly, which is what happened to John. And in fact, none of them have kids except him, uh, of yeah. those main ones in the first True. series. Mrs. Harnett does, but they're, she's, they're not mentioned and they're they're grown up, you know. And She's a background character. Yeah, yeah. That's well, literally, she sits behind everyone else. <laughs> but yeah, you're right, actually. I hadn't quite put it into those words but yeah this isn't about divorce at all is it <laughs> no i i think it's i i may be i may be overselling it here but i think it is about about that middle-aged dread and having to reinvent yourself and thinking you know what what does the rest of my life <laughs> this is i'm 44 as i'm saying this <laughs> as the words are coming out of me i think oh my god <laughs> Okay, so interestingly then that we have picked an episode that really does focus on the fallout of divorce uh, and and how that's affecting his life. But, you know, ultimately that's what informs the character, uh, whether that is the central theme of the show or not. It's certainly John's central 
driving force, right down to uh, the very opening credits. You know, he's the opening credits. We see him receiving the dear John letter and then moving out. Well, we see him outside the courthouse looking positive, optimistic, and then coming out looking like a broken man. I think that the opening credits are extraordinary. I, I really, I, I remember <laughs> the music very clearly, and I kind of had this memory of weird opening credits. But, but you're right; they're they're not uplifting. They're the opposite of uplifting. <laughs> dear John, dear As you say, we see him. We see him basically going through the process of a divorce, being kicked in the guts three, four times in the course of the credits. We see the note itself. We there's that sort of I don't want to call it heartbreaking music because that would elevate it a bit much. Uh, but it's not. I did notice actually that John Sullivan wrote the theme tune. He didn't sing. He the does. Theme he tune. writes the theme tune and sings the theme tune. Yeah, not he doesn't sing it. He does sing some of them, but this needed a, a high pitched woman's voice. So. But but my point is, it is not. I don't think it's a good introduction to the program because it, it's sort of telling us a little bit of a story. It's it's it, there's a bit of narrative in there, but you don't need that after the first episode. Maybe it's just getting you in this hangdog mood. Oh God, it's dear John. That's well, how hangdog I felt. is certainly the mood, yeah, of of John himself. You are you have actually hit on a major problem with the show that the main character, our central protagonist, is a bit depressing and, and not He's in a pathetic. funny way. I mean, I mean that in the sense that he has pathos. He's very sad. He's just tragic. I sympathise with him because you know he's been through a lot, the lad. But I don't like him. It's like you know, I wouldn't want to have a drink with him. I would think, oh god, I'm stuck with I'm stuck with John. Oh god. (laughs) (laughs) But that's it. He is. He's kind of quintessential nice guy. He's trying to keep everyone happy, even to the point where you know, like you say, he's been kicked in the guts with his divorce. But he's still like, no, no, the wife, she needs to look at, I've got the kid to think of, you know, that's not what, his best friend has betrayed him. It's like, oh, well, you know, at least he's looking after her. She's got someone, you know, it's, but that is really annoying (laughs) to watch in someone. And he has these moments of anger. We do have, we'll see this a bit in the episode we look at. He has these little moments of anger and they're immediately diffused, immediately dissipated. And and he's kind of, he's a nice bloke. Like he's a lovely guy. And he's very thoughtful about other people and what they need. And, you know, the, the comedy comes from the fact that the people around him are thought less. And so he tends to be the brunt of everything. Yes. But, but you know, that doesn't make him interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't make him likable either. That's kind of the problem there. Shall we, let's, shall we talk about our, uh, the episode then? So episode yeah. five, Toby. This basically consists of three scenes. We have the one-to-one club to start off with. Mm-hmm. Then we, then John goes to see, he spends the day with his son, Toby, and then sees his ex-wife, Wendy, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then we finish off with this party for all the one-to-one people. Yeah. They're not enormously connected, those three scenes, are they? They, they no. feel like three separate little playlets. Yeah, and I think that's fairly typical of Dear John. Yeah. It is all connected, obviously. It's just kind of his life. But it kind of feels like this is... It can't decide if it's an ensemble show about the one-to-one club or if it's about John. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's about John. It's called Dear John. He's the one we follow on things. But he's also the least interesting character of the lot. And so... That's the problem, isn't it? That's it in a nutshell. (laughs) When we see them all together, that's a lot more interesting. And in fact, episode one, obviously, where he meets them all. But then episode two is basically the whole thing is just in the group. 
and it mm-hmm. gives us a chance to flesh out the characters a little bit. Just really establish the relationships between them, don't Yeah, you? and it's probably my favourite episode just because that's what I want the show to be. Like, this group, and there's, it's an ensemble thing, mm. we can follow mm. them. And yeah, and then one week, Ralph's uh, depressed because his terrapins died, so everyone goes to his house and they do that. They have all these social engagements, don't they? Other, other, we talk about social engagements and Louise says, Halloween fondue at Mrs. Haddock's isn't firm. <laughs> there's a lot... <laughs> There's a lot of sort of vague, very vague. Is that an innuendo? Is that? I don't know if it is. I don't know, but I liked it. It's (laughs) a lovely turn of phrase. There's a lot of that goes on, particularly with Louise's character. Yeah. So it's we have Louise, who's the like the chair, the convener, the leader of the group. Yeah. She's she feels like she's very of her time as a character. One of those uh, 1980s Sloney women. Uh, and, you know, she says, yeah, shall we do this, yeah? <laughs> Which was very kind of Princess Diana at the time. We won't be the only ones there, dear. This isn't the only night the one-to-one club meets. We have our Monday night people who meet on Monday nights, yeah? Then there are the Wednesday night people who meet on Wednesday nights, and we are the Friday night people because... Oh, that's a toughie, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, then, every so often, we all get together and have a little disco party, something like that. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> See, I, I find Louise, I think she, as a character, is the right balance for a big comedy character in this show. But I also feel like she should be the far end of that. And I don't I think. think she is. <laughs> I think yeah. Like, she's the right balance, and then we're going to see some more who are just a bit too far the other way. Yeah. I don't like her as a character. I, no. I, I don't. I don't mean in the sense that you just made. But you know, I just think she's she's not a very nice person. <laughs> Which you yeah. know, if you're trying to coordinate a group of vulnerable individuals, then <laughs> you know, she doesn't well, seem see, this is another. Like I say, this is another element that just we never quite get hold of. Like, what is Louise? We don't get much of a backstory for her, other than you know, her husband was into some kinky stuff so she left him but then yeah. she's obviously gagging for it all the time like she's always going there's this whole bit where she's kind of trying to get in bed with john like but is she not she's not really that committed to it she yeah. can be quite nasty but then she wants to support everyone she started a support group because you know that she gets her kicks out of that or whatever like she yeah she I mean, she's she likes to be in charge she likes to be yeah. the social hostess and you know, for things to rotate around her. Yeah. So, yeah, Louise is the leader of the group. And our other sort of principal characters are... Let's talk of Ralph. Well, so Ralph as a Rafe, as... Uh, Which as, I uh, do Louise love that him. as a little gag. Louise always calls him Rafe because she's just Because so she's, she's pretentious. <laughs> but she's not posh. She's not posh. She's upwardly... She's a upwardly she's slow and she likes to be think she's posh. Yeah. Yeah, so Ralph... Played by Peter Denyer, he just the weakest, boring stereotype of a character. It's yeah. not just a over-the-top character that doesn't really play on a nice, realistic level, but not interesting, not a new take on that either. Yeah. I just seem to spend every hour of the day and night stuck in my flat. There's no one to talk to, nothing to do. If it wasn't for my books on train spotting, I could become bored. <laughs> like, if I, if I said to you, like, 
do a do a, a, a nerdy train spot voice. Oh hello, I, I see I'm wearing my glasses. I like trains. But that's have it. Plaster on them. That's yeah, exactly. He's got plaster on his tape. It, and that is literally the first and end point of, of, the, of the character. And that's as good as it gets. It's it's pathetic, really. <laughs> that, that that's <laughs> one of the main characters. And it doesn't yeah. develop throughout the series at all. It's not just like it starts there. Well, we see um in the second series he's a mobile DJ. Which, yeah. you know, and the, the hilarity comes from the fact that he's still the same nerd just wearing a sparkly silver jacket. Do that funky thing. But that's it, exactly. So it's actually in the first series where he becomes a DJ and we see the first time we see him and he's going like, oh, get on down, everybody boogie, like yeah. with no charisma at all. And then the second series, which is an episode you've seen, it's just the same joke. Like, you, don't worry, that's been done before. There's no, there's no uh, extension. <laughs> I missed nothing. Yeah, so obviously it worked for you the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ralph's very one-dimensional. His story is that he was married to a Polish bride, f- married for five hours before she left him. Yeah. Well, I thought what was interesting about this, just to give you a bit of social history, you know, in 1987, a Polish bride was different to a Polish bride now. It's from, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, obviously the idea is... As soon as she got the passport or whatever, you know, the the official, you know, she can stay. She yeah. she ran off. Well, 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 Brexit Britain, mate. We'll be back. We're back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the other joke is that she was hideously ugly. That's a kind of long running thing. Yeah. Just the fact that, like, obviously, no worthy woman would be interested in whatsoever. Like, that's basically what we're mm-hmm. driving at here. So, what's his function within the within the the drama? Is it just to make John less? Pathetic. <laughs> Just to enhance John's status within the group slightly. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> That's what I mean. I don't think it's got beyond, oh, this is kind of a silly, fun char- funny character. And uh, I don't think it's a particularly great performance either. I think that's something you could take off the page better and, and bring something to it. How do you make that role? How do you play? You're an actor. How do you play that role better? <laughs> there's nothing there. There's nothing to work with. No, nah, I mean, I'll grant you. I'm not like, I don't want to slag the guy off too much, but <laughs> I think there's more to it. Like, I mean, an obvious comparison here is, let's say, Trigger from Only Fools and Horses. Yeah. As originally written, a very one-dimensional character mm-hmm. and does get developed because it went on for so long. But Roger Lloyd Pat brings something to that character there is he, he does bring something to it that not everyone else not everyone could i get you i think that's a fair comparison yeah basically all i was thinking while watching dear john is like this is if you took all the supporting characters from only fools and horses and put them together but there's no <laughs> del boy and rodney to kind of <laughs> give you any actual emotional <laughs> mm-hmm. um, pathos or anything or, or any real kind of interesting characters it's all just side characters made too big <laughs> yeah yeah well, speaking of too big, let's talk about Kirk then. So he's the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. um, almost literally. He, he's this ridiculous cartoonish um, medallion man, 10 years too late. Yeah. And we find out at some point that he is potentially, uh, this is all an act and he's actually a pathetic, very similar to Ralph, uh, lives with his mum, etc. Mm. But then he, he he seems to pretend that that's because he's actually a spy and <laughs> and, and it's, that's his cover. But But... He's, he's clearly, he's, he is, the character is acting. Yeah. The character is, is trying to be something he's not and overcompensating. But the, the effect of that on the drama is that the overcompensation just blows everything else out of the room. 
Yeah. Let's take this on face value, first of all. The, the reveal that he is not what he seems comes in episode six, the last episode of series one. So mm-hmm. let's deal with before that. Take him on face value of what he is. Yet, yeah, he's a poser. He's got the big, yeah, the medallion and all that, the open shirt. He's a 10-year out-of-date throwback, but he thinks he's cool. Yeah, he looks like he should be in Shawaddy Waddy. Yes, he's obnoxious, he's quite arrogant, he's offensive to people, but he doesn't really realise it. He doesn't do it deliberately. But but he is really offensive to people. Like, he's so rude. She was ugly. Really ugly. How can you possibly know that when you've never met her? She came from one of them commie countries, Bulgaria or somewhere. She came from Poland. Bulgaria, Poland, what's the difference? It's a well-known fact that the chicks from the Eastern Bloc are ugly. Well, that's a stupid thing to say, isn't it? Well, that's the sort of guy I am. Do you know what the other guys used to call me when I was in the Marines? Dickhead. (laughs) They called me straight from the shoulder St. Moritz. If the truth hurts, tough. Like, the joke is that he says the unsayable and he, he's rude and, and people are, oh, are shocked and we, that gets big laughs. But yeah. even compensating for the fact that this is a sitcom, the things he says in those first 10 minutes, no one would ever speak to him again. <laughs> Never mind invite him to the pub and continue to be friends with him. He'd have been expelled from that group before the first meeting. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the, the problem is that it becomes clear quite quickly that he is phony and that this is a nonsense mm. and and he tells stories about like oh yeah so I, I was you know i was on a mission in bulgaria and this woman and i did this and you know and even the characters in the space are like oh god here he goes eyes. again you're just talking to yeah, all they're rolling their eyes and thinking oh, oh I'm they a know spy. he's they know he's a liar exactly so when we get to episode six and there's this big reveal that he is in fact a bit of a sad pathetic loser man living with his mum it's not a big deal. And I've I've been reading on, like, you know, part of my research, I'll try and find, like, forums, people talking about Dear John. I'm going to try and get an idea of what people think about it. And there's definitely a lot of people saying, like, oh, I remember when, it, yeah, that big reveal was such a shocking moment. You find out that he's not that. It's like, was it? Because I was not shocked at all. The fact that The fact yeah. that he's revealed to be something that, you know, totally else makes perfect sense because we know the character's phony. The fact that what they've the chosen to The fact that he's exactly like Ralph in, is down to the car. Basically, Ralph <laughs> is just poor writing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it would just make much more sense. Plus, also, what we don't get is any real consequence of that. That's at the very end of uh, Series 1. So you think, right, Series 2 is going to kick in and things are going to change. But even even in epi- even at the end of that episode, like he obviously makes a choice that I'm not going to be myself. But as we see in series two, John doesn't treat him any differently. John knows. Everyone else knows, but maybe they don't really know. They thought it was a joke or something. I don't know. But yeah. nobody treats him any differently. He doesn't act any differently. And I think it would just be much more interesting for that character if, you know, what we reveal about him is maybe he's married. But this was his kind of, like, escape from it, you know? It's like mm-hmm. a, living a fake life. Or, or anything. But also yes. then, how does that inform but his then the consequences. So how does, that, how does his character evolve into the second yeah. series as a result? And, of course, there's no evolution at does all. Does he turn up in series two and he's a totally different character again? And they just have to kind of accept it because they don't want to be rude and tell him he's, he's a weirdo, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once again, yet another thing about Dear John that just never we never get hold of. It's something that happens and then nothing comes of it. And yes, that's my overriding thing with this whole thing. Half ideas that are poorly explored. But there is a sort of an exception to that in Kate, Belinda Lang's character, who is very normal and, and kind of quite straightforward. Well, let's talk about Kate, because Kate's the, the big thing about Kate is that she's frigid. 
Yes. And that is a word that you just don't hear anymore. Yeah. This is the thing, right? So that is obviously on paper. It's like, okay, this character's funny little thing is this. This character's funny little thing is so-and-so. And hers is, she's perfectly normal, except she's frigid. And like, in the episode where that is revealed, it is a bit of a like, oh, big moment. Everyone laughs. It's a kind of a big thing. Yeah. She's, And I'm just like, I don't even, I mean, I know what it means, but I don't know why I'm supposed to like, what am I supposed to read into that? Well, it's, it's a it's naughty, isn't it? You know, it's talking about sex without actually talking about sex. Yeah. That's why that's why the crowd do the big ooh. <laughs> but but yeah, it's just not a word that one would hear in twenty twenty, is it? But that's not just the word, but like the actual as the a concept. as a condition, I suppose. Is yeah. it is it even a thing? You just don't fancy it. <laughs> yeah, but we are told that she's been divorced three times. So, um, although what I will say is my impression of Kate from what we see is that she's incredibly angry. Mm. You know, she's she's furious and, you know, she snaps at Kirk, who obviously deserves it because he's a dickhead. But, yeah. she, you know, she snaps. She's she's very highly strong. I know I've got a problem. I have to face that problem every bloody day, but I choose not to broadcast it. Would you go around telling the whole world you've had three marriages break up because you're frigid? <laughs> I'm sorry, Kate. I didn't oh, mean to. Yeah, you well, called out a problem. This is like a one hour with me. Death, you see what you've done? I said I'm sorry. Did you never go and see a marriage guidance counselor? Yes, my second husband ran off with her. Well, I I really like Kate as a character. Basically, my takeaway from Dear John is, is I wish it was Dear Kate. Like, having her yeah. as a central character, I think it would be much more interesting. She's much more engaging. I really like Belinda Lang in it as well. Yeah. I may have a slight retro crush on on Belinda Lang in the 80s, it turns out. I think I might have had a crush on her, yeah. That may be yeah. influencing my opinions, <laughs> but it turns out that's how I feel. So let me ask you this, having watched all the episodes, does anything ever happen between her and John? Because there's a little bit of a flirtation, and then in one episode they get drunk and they, they mm. sleep together, but, you know, just literally sleep together. It feels like that's the will-they-won't-they they of the drama. It feels like it should be, doesn't it? It does. Like, right from the beginning, we have these kind of wacky characters and she's the normal one. She, like, so we immediately think, oh, she's the one he's going to engage with. They've got obviously things in common. Like, it seems like an obvious will-they-won't-they they situation. And it's not... Yeah, episode six, they end up getting drunk and, and sleeping together. We don't really know what happens. They don't either. So, th But there's not a real good build-up to that before it happens. It just happens, mm. and then there's nothing after it either. It's just... And that is quite typical of Dear John, I found, is that there's a bit of potential, and then it doesn't quite make it, and then nothing happens. But yes, yeah, so what we open with this episode is the club altogether, and I generally prefer these scenes with them all together. But actually, this opens with a very rare, very rare moment of what appears to be sincere emotional uh, outpouring. Kate mm. is genuinely sad, and she's talking about how her divorces, of, her marriages have failed, and it's weighing heavily on her. But we immediately cut to Louise, who looks bored. Yeah, exactly. This is, like, why? I don't know. It just seems like an odd thing. Maybe the idea is that this is actually a genuine like emotional therapy thing and that's boring i just want to hear the tit the the gossip like you imagine that's what that's what's happening at those sessions you yeah. know they are talking like yeah you know, they're talking about their lives and how they feel and mm. well that's it we see ralph talk about that sort of thing quite a lot but it always seems comedic because of the circumstances of and the way he speaks yeah. and everything and then whenever kirk is talking it's just lies so it's always ridiculous mm -hmm. and we don't get much out of um, john really 
Uh, but yeah, this this scene is pretty typical of the kind of one-to-one club bits. And then we have uh, Mrs. Arnott, uh, a classic bit of vibrator innuendo. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of innuendo. Never, never sort of like, it's sort of like, is that is that a euphemism? Because there's a bit where she says, oh, it's it's a, it's a mini attack alarm. And Kirk says, no one's going to attack your mini. And I thought, is that a euphemism? Like, mini is a euphemism for something? But then he immediately goes, you know, people steal, like, Fords and, and Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. They don't yeah. steal minis. It's like, no, he meant it very literally about a mini. <laughs> the joke is that she says mini attack alarm meaning small. He thinks he means the car. Yeah. That's but no, but that's not funny. And at no point is that like a euphemism. I don't know. It's just a weird mess. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of weird lines. It's something I noticed about the show in general. This is about the production level, I guess. There's there's a lot of times where the timing just seems off. The delivery is mm. just not quite right in terms of like what you would think it should be. When I said earlier about it being very stagey, that's what I meant. There are some, particularly some of the supporting cast, that are very overacting, very stage schooly. And that manifests itself in really weak delivery of the, of the jokes and the timings. It, it feels like they're sort of projecting to the studio audience rather than actually we're we're you know eavesdropping on a conversation. Yeah, but even then, it's like if you're going to do that, get the timing right, get the comic timing <laughs> right. And a lot of these guys are experienced comic actors. It's not like they're just mm-hmm. don't know what they're doing. And I, I don't know. It, it feels like it could be under rehearsed, perhaps something like that. I don't. I, I haven't got any background information on that, and there's no reason why it should be more than anything else. And just for the record, the guy who shepherded this in, the producing director Ray Butt, had worked with John Sullivan on everything. You know, he's the right. guy who brought Citizen Smith in. He started Only Fools and Horses. So there's no reason why suddenly that there's a dynamic there that's not working. That that shouldn't be a problem. So there's there's quite a lot going on in that scene. Well, there's quite a lot that happens in that scene, but not a lot going on. It's all totally inconsequential. There's a little bit of setup for the party at the end of the episode, but that's the only purpose of it, really. They do bring up kids, which I think is like on a tonal level, that's going to set us up for for, um, John dealing with his son later on. And, you know, we're talking about how the rest of them haven't got kids or anything like that. But again, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's not like there's any point to any of it. We have a bit where Louise says she was going to adopt a Vietnamese baby, but there was too much paperwork, so she got a dog instead. (laughs) That's a kind of a nice little gag. It's a throwaway little thing. And then there's this very long and pained setup to get to a joke, which is that Ralph would call his son Bing, and his surname is Dring, and therefore it would be Bing Dring. And now, the way I've just performed that is done with as much panache as, and speed as they do it and got as big a laugh. <laughs> Did we know his name was Dring before that point? Because I didn't know where they were going with it because I didn't know that was his surname. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I can't remember. But yeah, I think it's mentioned, but it's not like a big thing. It's just like, oh, my name's Ralph Dring. Hello. But maybe not, actually, because I don't know. Uh, maybe they made it up specifically for that joke. It was certainly very laboured. It's a long setup. There's this weird, um, there's this weird moment where there's a kind of. It's not a joke. It just sort of comes to the end of a sentence, and then there's this sort of long pause. It's far too long for TV. It's like two seconds where nothing happens, as if they're waiting for a laugh and nothing comes. But it's not like there was a joke that didn't land. It was just it wasn't a joke, and then they just move on to something else. It's it's so weird, and that is ultimately I think quite typical. There's just 
a weird atmosphere about this whole show that just mm. doesn't quite work. Like I said, the timing's not quite there. And uh, so also in this bit, we have Ralph talk about trying a dating agency and, you know, in the 80s. Computer dating. Computer dating. It's the future. They put their little <laughs> punch See, I remember, into a machine. I remember that being a thing. And it's, I mean, you know, you're younger than me. I've got to tell you that computer dating, as they mean it, is a lot lower tech than you think. <laughs> Basically, basically, people would fill in a questionnaire and send it off in the post, and then someone with a computer somewhere would have a database <laughs> and then send you someone else's questionnaire printed out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it was. So basically, it was matchmaking yeah. using a computer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was Tinder. It was not. Well, I found it quite interesting because in Only Fools and Horses. In an episode that would have come out two years after this, Del Boy mm-hmm. meets Raquel, who obviously ends up being the love of his life, uh, yes, through yeah. a computer dating agency. Oh, that's interesting. Which, you know, it was just a sort of like, because I remembered that, it jumped out of me. Maybe it's a John Sullivan thing. Like, he, he'd heard about these computer dating agencies. He's like, oh, that's a good idea. I can use it was, that. There were, there was, yeah, I mean, I was, I was a kid. I wasn't dating <laughs> then. But I, I know about computer dating. It was a thing. It was a thing that people talked about. <laughs> Well, speaking of just putting this into the 80s, um, Kirk, in this particular scene, is not wearing his sort of traditional open shirt with crucifix, giant crucifix. He's wearing a sort of uh, a nice grey blazer with popped collar over a Rambo t-shirt. Did you notice that? You know, I didn't notice that. I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> interesting. The, it certainly appears to be Sylvester Stallone with a massive gun. Uh, so I think it was Rambo. Very of its yeah. time, I guess. <laughs> Rambo. Boxing three, gloves, Rocky. Machine gun Rambo. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like he's got a big Scarface poster on his wall somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, if his mum lets him. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's a rather typical scene of complete inconsequential nonsense involving the group. And I think that would be fine if the whole thing was part of the group and that was just like the five minutes settled before we start getting into the plot. But it's not, it's just like, oh, well, we better... I want to do this whole thing with the sun and all that, but we better put these characters in because, you know, they're the characters we we got. We we committed yeah. to it now. It feels a bit half-arsed. Well, we're going to... Well, let's move on to the to the bit with this sun with Wendy. But but as we move on to it, I, I think a whole episode of that would have been a bit too heavy. And that's probably the reason for leavening that with humour at the start and the end. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And and obviously this episode is about him dealing with the ex-wife and the son. That's what mm-hmm. the episode is about. But it's like, oh, it's only coming at 17 minutes. What are we going to do? Okay, we'll just yeah, stick yeah. something big in the end. Well, that's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. You'll have to come back next time to find out how John got on with his ex-wife, Wendy, and also hear us talking about the rest of that episode, as well as looking at the actors and uh, what they did before and after Dear John. In the meantime, if you crave more sitcom discussion, then we do have a back catalogue that is now steadily increasing. Go and check out some of our other episodes. Go to our YouTube channel, British Sitcom History, where there is even further content that doesn't go out on the podcast. Lots of things to enjoy, and if you do enjoy them, please recommend us to a friend, rate and review us on iTunes, anything you can do to help promote us, because we are still a fledgling podcast, and we need all the boosts we can get. And of course, you can contact us on the social medias. We are at BritcomPod, and we are really enjoying all the feedback, so go and get in touch there. Thank you very much for listening, we hope you will be back next time.